Well, if you would, if you have your Bible already open, uh, please open to Luke chapter 6. This morning we were going to be in verses 27 through 36. And this is a passage in which Jesus calls on his followers to love their enemies. And I first taught a version of this sermon several months ago to our youth ministry on a Wednesday evening for our Bible study. And it's one that has caused me to continue to think over the heart and content of Jesus' calling on us in this passage ever since. And the reason being is I found it to be very hard. There are many difficult texts in Scripture. Some are a challenge for us to understand. Some are theologically rich and deep, requiring not only an understanding of that particular passage, but also that we must understand the Bible as a whole in order to understand that particular doctrine. But others, like this text, are hard mainly because of us. We make it hard. People make it hard. This passage in Luke is one of those passages, but in God's wisdom, Jesus gave it to us. And I think that he gave it to us for a very important reason, because it teaches us a lot about ourselves, about God, and about the gospel. It's just one that happens to be rather difficult for just about every one of us to practically embrace. And the reason why this passage is difficult to embrace is because it calls us to love those who personally for us that we find difficult to love. In this text, Jesus is not calling us to some kind of ordinary love, but to a love that's exceptional, a love that's superior, and a love that should be characteristic of every disciple of Christ because of the love that he has personally shown us and is showing us even this morning. So as the passage begins in verse 27, Jesus addresses his listeners, his disciples this way. He says, I say to you who hear. And when he does this, it's as if to say, if you are listening to me, it's important that you not only hear me, but that you respond to me. By responding, I will know that you as my disciples are really listening, that you're really getting it, that you really are learning the way of the Christian life. And so the calling for us, summarized especially in verses 27 and 28, is that we love our enemies, do good to those who hate us, bless those who curse us, and pray for those who abuse us. And perhaps you can imagine no more difficult a practical calling in following Jesus. I mean, at least for me, I find it far easier not to love than to love those who don't love me back. And it's deep in my heart, and I think that Jesus wants to work on that in me. Sometimes it pops up in unexpected places. Like a few days ago when I was driving and listening to a song that we sing in church, forgetting to turn my brights off as another car approached, and they let me know how mad they were at me by blinding me with their lights in return. And I get this feeling welling up inside of me of hostility, welling up in my heart. Well, where did that come from? It came from me. It came from my sin. And I suspect that you know this. Maybe you're not so easily ruffled as me, but I think that you still know this. 
We, of course, live in a fallen world, and evidence of the fall is clearly and readily seen in the divisions and the hostilities found around the world that have ruptured our human relationships. Hatred coming from the human heart causing divisions. Today, we find it all over the internet. Today, it's found in our political divisions. It's found in how divided up our society can actually be so that we don't have to interact with people that we don't want to interact with, that we don't want to have a relationship with. Even if the hatred or the division seem to be below the surface. But this problem, of course, is an ancient problem. As far back as Genesis 3, immediately after Adam and Eve fell into their sin, they made excuses for their sin, including Adam blaming Eve for his own sin. And you've got to be sure that that caused some strife between them. Then in the very next chapter, Genesis 4, we're told the story of the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. And Cain had been filled with hatred and jealousy toward his brother because God favored Abel over Cain. So Cain, for the murder, was not only cast out, but he had to be protected by the Lord in order for the very same thing, murder, that it might be prevented from happening to Cain. So hostilities from very early on in human history. And this was only the start. I find it interesting that some of the most horrible acts of sin imaginable are recorded for us in Scripture. And I think that they're there to show us how sinful we really are. And no doubt these sins, these acts, resulted in lasting hostilities. And I want to give you a few examples of these. Shocking ones. So following the rape of Dinah in Genesis 34, her brothers avenged her by killing the man responsible for the rape and killing his father. And afterwards, they took every single possession of theirs and made it their own. And that's, no matter way, uh, which way you cut it, that's a really nasty story. Or how about in 2 Kings chapter 6? There an enemy king named Ben-Hadad has besieged the city of Samaria in northern Israel. The siege resulted in the starvation of the citizens of Samaria, and some of them, in their desperation, resorted to killing and cannibalizing their own children. You can only imagine the kind of lasting hatred that must have resulted in such a terrible war for those that were survivors. Hatred that would last for generations. Or how about in Second Kings chapter 25? There we have Nebuchadnezzar. He's assaulting Judah. He captures Judah's king Zedekiah. And Nebuchadnezzar brings Zedekiah in front of him and he kills Zedekiah's sons right in front of him. And then he gouged Zedekiah's eyes out. So the very last thing that Zedekiah ever saw with his physical vision as he was being tormented was of his enemies killing his sons. There are other shocking events in the Bible where no doubt the result would be bitter hostility between individuals, families, communities, and nations. And you know... The resulting hostilities seem like inevitabilities. It's like that's the way things must be if we're ever going to be doing such terrible things to one another. I mean, how could we ever make peace when things like this have been done against us? What could possibly ever be expected that things would be different? I mean, what if you, 
in the case of Joseph, what would you do if your brothers hated you and plotted your death only to change their mind to sell you into slavery in Egypt? I mean, wouldn't you seethe with anger? Wouldn't you live only for revenge? Or could you somehow forgive your brothers and embrace them as family once more? If you were Stephen's young son, assuming Stephen had a son, if you were Stephen's young son, would you pray for those who authorized this killing as Stephen did? And then later embrace someone like Paul as your dear brother? Or would you refuse to give him the right hand of fellowship because of what he had done? Or would you, if your son, your only son, was violently murdered by the authorities, who by injustice they covered up their own sin and condemned your son who had done nothing wrong, would you ever embrace them to be a part of your family? Ever. Even if they were deeply sorry and had it thoroughly changed. Clearly on this side of heaven, the command to love those that we don't feel like loving or embracing is going to be a mountainous challenge. And that mountain that must be toppled is sin. And sin will be toppled only by the gospel if those without Christ are going to be saved. So perhaps you're starting to see why Jesus' commands for us here in Luke 6 seem so radical. They seem so extraordinary to us. Like maybe we're tempted to think that Jesus is just speaking in hyperbole. So that we can shrug it off. Or we might come up with loopholes. Like, how could loving your enemies not be an affront to justice? Shouldn't we want our enemies to be punished? Don't we want consequences to be doled out for things that people have done, even by God, and not to apologize for it? I mean, how could Jesus ever ask us, really, to love our enemies? Now, you may be thinking, Kevin, why are you giving such extreme examples of this? Such extreme examples of sin done by sinful people to the harm of their victims. Well, the reason why I'm doing this is because Jesus doesn't add any exceptions to his commands in this passage in Luke chapter 6. And if you think about it in this way, we're, of course, called to love our family. We're, of course, called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're called to love our neighbors as ourself. But now we're called to love our enemies? Well, if that's the case, who's left? Nobody's left. We're called to love them all. And if we can somehow, as Christians, love our enemies, then we will be filled up to the brim with the love of Christ. But how can that be possible with the scars that we carry from the hurts that have been done and the wrongs that have been done against us. And here we need to trust Jesus and his wisdom. You know, we don't happen to know the background of any of the disciples with any great detail. We don't know what they've been through, what kind of harm that they've endured, but Jesus knew everything about them. And of course, he also knew their future where every single one of them would be persecuted for their faith in the Lord Jesus and for their faithfulness to the mission that Jesus was calling them to. Jesus wasn't unaware of anything in their lives and in their hearts that would make following this command difficult. He knew full well what was in their hearts. But he knows our hearts too. He knows how or if 
We've been hurt or abused. He knows what has traumatized us. He knows what cost his people have paid over the centuries for the sake of advancing the gospel. Jesus knows that what he says here will be hard for us, and he knows it even today. He knows whether pressure is being put on you at work that goes against your conscience or against your faith. He knows how Christians are being maligned in places all around the world. He knows every struggle that we have, have had and will have. And yet he gives us his calling nonetheless. Now I want to spend some time getting exactly into what this calling is to love our enemies. But I want to pause here and comfort you with a few things. Because if you're like me, you're going to feel like you don't measure up. So the first comfort is this. That you should be comforted by this passage because Christ himself fulfilled this very calling. Christ loved his enemies. And of those enemies that he loved, I'm one of them. And so are you. What Christ has done for us in saving us is what makes faithfulness possible to this calling that Christ is calling us to. The second encouragement is this. I'm convinced that in any And every small way that you are able to love in this very way to do good to, to bless, to pray for those that might be difficult for you to love, that it brings glory to God. That you honor Christ and what he has done for you. So Paul says this in Titus chapter 3, says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And this saving of us is changing us. We used to be haters of God and haters of others, but now we're new creations in Christ. The third thing that's a comfort to us is that this love that we're being called to is actually a supernatural love. We'll get more into this throughout the sermon, but this love is not our love originating from us, but instead it's God's love for the world around us that's given to us. Through the power of the gospel, God not only loves us, but he gives us his love that he might love the world through us. That through sacrifice, through love undaunted, we will feel compassion, mercy, and love for those who are lost including the meanest ones of them, that they might know the love of God through the person and Savior of Jesus, and that they too might be changed. Now, this introduction was rather lengthy for a purpose. It's to help us to realize what exactly Jesus is calling us to, so that we don't miss out on participating in this extraordinary calling, as this will be good for us. And so with that, let's dig into the text and see the four commands that Jesus gives us here. So look with me again at verses 27 through 28. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So here in these two verses, Jesus challenges his disciples with four complementary commands. But all of them hinge on the first one, to love your enemies. So first, let's define the two key terms, love and enemies. 
The word used here in the biblical Greek for enemies is ekthros. And it means personal enemies. It has personal enemies in mind in the various relationships of everyday life. It's used to describe a person who has hostile, perhaps even actively hostile feelings against you. And in the context here, of course, it's unwarranted hostility. The person hasn't done anything against them to deserve that kind of treatment. And because Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and in context we know that persecution is something that he has in mind, the enemies referred to here are very real to the disciples. They are their persecutors. As Jesus says to them in Matthew 5.43, this is a parallel passage for this, he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The you have heard it said that Jesus says there means that the disciples were taught that it was appropriate, at least in certain cases, to hate their enemies. And there are actually passages in the Old Testament that do not condemn hating one's enemies, including Psalm 139. So that's true. They were taught true things. But there are also several passages in the Old Testament that encourage the love, or at least not the hatred of, one's enemies. But the point here is that Jesus, as their Lord and Savior, is that he has in mind for them that they love beyond what they were taught because now the gospel is being made known. Beyond what they were ordinarily expected to bear in life, they were to love their enemies. The word love here is agape. You've probably heard of that, agape. Agape is one of several words in the biblical Greek that's used for love. And each one of them carry carry a nuanced meaning. So eros, for example, refers to romantic or sexual love. Philea is uh, the word uh, for which we get uh, or have Philadelphia come from. It refers to friendship or brotherly love. Storge refers to a natural affection, something that's easy for us, a natural kind of love. Well, agape, just in the biblical Greek or in the Greek language, it refers to a goodwill or a benevolence. But in light of the gospel and of the New Testament, agape actually carries a very deep, uniquely Christian meaning. It refers especially to God's love for us as demonstrated through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a love even meant for the unlovely. It is a deep, unmerited, unconditional love that God has and that he gives to his people. The word means to cherish to have a deep affection for, and to take pleasure in. So the Apostle Paul will say in Romans 13.10 that love is the fulfillment of the law. It's in love that we are most like God in his character. In Luke, Jesus is saying that love gets to the very essence of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so the unlovely that we are called to love in Luke 6, if you take it to its extreme would be our personal enemies. In other words, Jesus has people in mind. You can put a face to them. Now, you may or may not have anyone in your life that you would dare to call your enemy. And listen, if if that happens to be you and you're boldly living your Christian life in front of the world and you're at peace with everyone, then praise God for that. That's a good thing. But even if that's the case, I'm almost certain that there are people that you have in mind that in your heart you are easily closed off against. People that you don't want to love. 
people that you don't want to be close to, people that you try to keep a distance from. So under the umbrella of enemy, beyond the word neighbor, is anyone that might simply, you might simply say that you don't feel any sort of natural or brotherly affection toward. These are among those that Jesus is calling you to actively love, including people that you might call your enemy, or at least they might think of themselves as your enemy. So how might you show them love? How exactly are you to love? What is this kind of love? Well, simply put, this love is desiring for and working toward what is best for others, including especially their salvation. It begins in the heart of the disciple that's been changed by the love of God, in the heart of the disciple that's filled up with God's love, and it sets out from our hearts to take action, to go on mission for Jesus. Examples of action, I think, is why Jesus gives the three related commands. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. These really help color in what it means to love as Christ is calling us to do so here. So let's take that do good to those who hate you. In a way, I think that it's amazing that Jesus would call us beyond just thinking well about those that presently despise us. He wants us to do more, that Jesus would call us to do more than to put up with them, to simply not be against them. That's not enough. That, in fact, he would call us to do them good. So do good, of course, has action in mind, things that you can do in order to demonstrate sacrificial, selfless love, things that demonstrate kindness, even in the face of hostility. In other words, love here isn't meant to stay put in your mind or in your heart or some kind of platitude like I love everyone, but something that you would do to insert clear kindness into the matter. With the context of this passage being the Beatitudes, Jesus has in mind that we would be ready to care for people's needs, financial, necessities like food, ready to comfort them when they are mourning, to speak well of them in any way that we can. And to offer them the truth from God's word. To not withhold good things in whatever way we can, especially the gospel. Because, of course, who knows? God may save them. So for this, I'm sure that you could probably come up with many examples. Whether it's stories of how missionaries have shown kindness in the face of hostility. Stories in which, you know, maybe a a neighbor was unkind or really bitter or hostile toward you. And you love them and you saw God at work in that. One that I think of comes from the Bible. It's where Paul showed kindness toward the Philippian jailer. So instead of fleeing the prison, the moment that the earthquake shook those doors open by God's sovereign power, saying good riddance to the Philippian jailer, good riddance to you who were unjustly persecuting me, instead Paul remained there to do some good. And it was in that moment that by God's sovereign plan and through Paul's kindness that the door was open for Paul to share Jesus with the Philippian jailer. And a once enemy that very night became Paul's dear brother and friend in Christ. Do good to those who hate you. The next command is to bless those who curse you. So this complimentary command moves from actions to words including words that you would make of appeal to God on behalf of this person. 
asking for God's grace, asking for his kindness, his mercy, and blessing for the very one who would rather curse you. Jesus did this while he was on the cross. He asked God to bless. Stephen did this while he was being stoned, asking God to forgive the very ones who were cursing those whom God dearly loves is to bless rather than to curse. Now, why specifically say bless those who curse you instead of just directly moving on to praying for them? Well, I think that part of this has to do with the reality of judgment to come. On judgment day, God is going to finally curse those who cursed his son, who rejected his son. But now in this life, there's time to repent. There's time to reconcile with God. And that's what really gets to the heart of the matter. It's hard for us to get our hearts in the right place that Jesus is calling us to here. As John MacArthur put it, the reproaches that are being made against us who are in Christ are actually being made against our Savior. We want Jesus to be honored. And so we're offended when he's dishonored. And yet, what honors Jesus here is faithfulness to his commands for the gospel. And so we're challenged to bless even in the face of cursing. And then the fourth and final command that Jesus gives here is that we're called to pray for those who abuse us. You know, interestingly, I think that many of us would have put this as the first step because we might think of praying for others as the easiest thing to do. So I think that there's a reason why Jesus put this last. You know, while love is at the heart of all of this, and love is what's needed in order to lead to loving actions and loving words. It must also lead us to loving prayers on behalf of those who need it most. And we're just not going to ordinarily or naturally pray for those that we don't have a heart for. So if we are to pray for those who have done us harm, it will be because God has filled up our hearts with love to do so. And oftentimes, because of the hostility and harm that has happened, Prayer is the only thing that we can do. It's the only way we can get close to them. Now, I will say in our culture today that the word abuse can be a rather loaded term. There's a lot of harm, a lot of abuse that's happened in our world. It's always happened, but it's happening, and people are paying a special attention to it even now. Now, I think that it's best that we understand all of these terms as roughly synonyms. Enemies, hate, curse, and abuse. So abuse in this sense would be anything that's ever been done against you that shouldn't have been done. Anything that harmed you that shouldn't have been done. But I will say this, even in light of the more loaded understanding of abuse today. Today, um, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. These are all real and horrible things. And people should take action to limit them, to hinder them from ever happening. We should stand against those things from happening. But many of these things have happened to people like you and me. And the gospel has the power to even work in us who have been most deeply hurt by others in such a way that we could still rejoice in the grace and justice of God should they repent of their sins and believe in Christ. And the power of the gospel is strong enough to open up our hearts to pray for people that have hurt us. And if we're able to keep this command or the other three for that matter, it will only be by God's grace, graciously at work in our hearts. But it'll still be genuine. 
It'll be amazing. We'll have a genuine care for others in our hearts. That will be a good thing. Now, I want to take the rest of our time to kind of work partly through verses 29 through 36. And in this section, I want you to see that this calling of Jesus to love our enemies is not going to be in vain. And so as a result, I want to give you motivations uh, for following this, these commands from Christ in the rest of the sermon. Now look at verses 29 through 36. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Most likely that actually refers not to a slap, but to a punch. It's extraordinary. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. From the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that, uh, that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Verse 34. And if you lend to those who, uh, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So for the sake of time, we're not going to thoroughly work through these verses. But here's why. For the most part, these verses are given to us as illustrations of what agape love or gospel-driven love looks like. What it looks like being put into action, including how it relates to the golden rule, heavenly rewards, and the glory of God. For the most part, these examples offered are straightforward, and that should make it easy for us to think about how we might put this kind of agape love into practice in our own everyday lives. So with that being said, what I want to do now through the end of the sermon is to give those four motivations for loving those in your life that you find difficult to love, so that hopefully you'll be equipped well to go to the Lord, seeking help from Him, and figuring out how to apply these commands in your life as a faithful disciple. These four motivations are gleaned from these verses, from the context, and also from our hope that we have in the gospel to change people's lives. So here are those motivations. Number one, in view of this calling from Jesus to love our enemies, we can take comfort in the fact that God is absolutely sovereign. That God is absolutely sovereign. This is taught throughout Scripture. It's also taught clearly in the context of our passage today. Here's why the sovereignty of God is an important motivator to this calling and something that we can rest in. It's important here because coupled with this calling to love our enemies, especially when we're talking about sinful, harmful actions, including persecution against God's people, is that there's a sense in enduring this that injustice is happening. We know that God cares deeply about justice. And God does so without apology. His grace shown to the world through Christ does not mean that justice is swept under the rug or that it will be lost. He will make everything right. Here's how we know this in the context. Look at Luke 6.22 and 23. This is uh, the Beatitudes in Luke. Jesus says, Blessed are you when people hate you, 
And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name, name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So working through this, Jesus makes the following promises. If you are persecuted on my account, you will be blessed. So thinking about those prophets, can you imagine the prophets who were persecuted as being forsaken by God? Well, no. Can you imagine Jesus who was rejected and reviled as being forsaken forever by God? Of course not. Therefore, all those who stand with the Son will be blessed. Their reward in heaven will be great, and God, by His sovereign power, will ensure it. Conversely, what immediately follows the Beatitudes in Luke 6 are woes that Jesus pronounces. These are in verses 24 through 26. This is the context for this calling that Jesus has given us. These are those that Jesus is pronouncing woes against are people who have cursed God's children, who have despised Jesus' disciples out of hostility toward Christ, or simply because they're evil. Jesus says that they will receive woe. Blessing to the disciples of Christ, woes or curses to those who harm them. So no injustice will ever play out throughout eternity. God is sovereign and his purposes and his judgments will be absolutely and perfectly fulfilled. In heaven there will be no enemies. There will be no more. No hostiles there, no revilers, no unrepentant sinners at all. Paul makes this abundantly clear in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Every one of these sins listed not only harm the person doing the sin, but their sins against God. And they harm people made in God's image as well, including those who are in Christ. And God says that there will be none who are unrighteous in his kingdom. None. So we can trust God's perfect and righteous judgment against the wicked and his perfect and righteous blessing of those in Christ in view of this challenge that Jesus is calling us to now to love our enemies. The amazing thing, though, and it's humbling, too, is that Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 makes it clear that the Christians in Corinth, and so us, too, used to be unrighteous, including being sinners in the very ways that he just listed out. He says, and such were some of you, but you have been washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. This applies to every one of us who are presently in Christ. We were enemies of God and of others. We may have mistreated Christians especially before coming to faith in Christ. But through Christ, God saved us and justified us, meaning that God justly and righteously gave us Christ's righteousness. We're not better. We have the righteousness of Christ. It's given to us as, as a gift. We were once enemies of God, but now, through the power of God and the gospel, we are friends at God and at peace with him. Jesus himself had this gospel work of God in mind 
when he said the famous words of John 3.16. In the verses that followed, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. So this present time is the time of evangelism and of missions. It's the time that God, through the followers and messengers of Jesus, are to go throughout the world with the only message of reconciliation to those who need to be reconciled with God. God is sovereign over all of this work. And sovereignly, Jesus' followers will have trouble and will face harm in this life at the hands of people who happen to be sinners. In love, we trust God to do what's right by His sovereign grace and by His sovereign justice. The second motivation for us to love our enemies is that the love of enemies puts the gospel on display in a much more compelling way than simply loving those who already love us back. In the example that Jesus gives in verses 29 through 30, we see this point clearly. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. So this is an extraordinary example of extraordinary love. But it's Christ-like love. Jesus came willing to give of himself And to suffer, to give and give and give, not to demand everything back in order to save people. People who were often not initially friendly to Jesus. Jesus came, he taught the gospel, and he put the gospel on display by his very life. And it goes like this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Romans 5, 6 through 10. So present enemies, hostile unbelievers, they need to hear the gospel. And they need to see it on display by our lives as we live our lives. Gospel words must be shared, but also our lives need to align with our message. That we are messengers of a gospel of reconciliation. We are messengers in clay jars. We are vulnerable to suffering. But we are messengers on behalf of the king that those we are seeking to reach with the gospel that they can be made right with God. Our attitude and our acts toward unbelievers must include love or else our credibility as messengers can be questioned. Now for motivation number three. Motivation number three is that Jesus tells us Our reward in heaven will be greater if we love those that don't presently love us back. That's what Jesus really focuses on as a motivation in verses 29 through 36. So the question that comes up in these verses 
given a situation where we're called to love on someone who doesn't love us in return, the question that comes up is like, which is actually better for you? Or to put it more clearly, what would be more for your eternal good? To love your enemies or to hate? Look at verse 32. Jesus, Jesus there says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And the same idea is in verse 33. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And again in verse 34. If you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. So this is almost like a kind of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but with respect to doing good to people. And as a potentially funny example, um, let me tell you about how my sister and I used to do birthday gifts. My birthday is on September 27th, and hers is exactly two weeks later on October 11th. And for a few years, um, I would get a $20 Amazon gift card in the mail from my sister. And then two weeks later, she would get a $20 Amazon gift card from me. (laughs) After a while, we realized that there was no benefit in doing that. We decided to do something different, but we've never really figured it out. Maybe you'll have good ideas for us. Here's the point, though. Just doing the same thing and no better that sinners already do for sinners doesn't result in any benefit or reward for you as a Christian. For nothing you've done, if you've done it this way, actually magnifies the gospel in your life. There are kind and kindish things that happen around the world all the time, and people don't take notice. But when someone does something incredibly kind and loving, In a surprising way, people take notice. Not only do people take notice, but God takes notice. So Jesus says, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind and ungrateful. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. So while there certainly can be temporal loss, pain, heartache, hurt, and loving those who are hard to love, who are lost, take heart in knowing that nothing that's ultimate, nothing that ultimately matters will ever be lost. God will make sure of it. Motivation number four, love is the only way that present enemies may become our friends. And by friends, I mean our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the only way. Love is the only way that enemies may become our friends. So think about it this way. Returning hostility with hostility, even if it's an eye for an eye, is not going to cause your enemy to become your friend. It's not the way things work. You may find a way to get them to back down, but you will not have gained a friend. And yet, having them as friends in Christ is the goal. God sent his son in love into the world to save the world. And of course, in God's sovereign plan, not all are chosen. And many will choose to remain in their sinful, willful rebellion against God. But that's not the point here. The point is that enemies can only be won over as friends through love. For love and the glory of God is at the heart of why Jesus came to save. 
This is often the way that the Holy Spirit saves is through the love of a Christian towards someone else. And wouldn't it be amazing if God made someone who presently despises you or who has hurt you, who wants nothing to do with you, to become your truest and dearest friend? Wouldn't that be amazing? That we would welcome the thought of those very people being in heaven with us forever in fellowship. God has done this very thing. He's doing it even now. He welcomes his former enemies into his family and into his kingdom through the gospel of his sons, and he makes them his children. We must do the same as our part as messengers. In heaven and in the body of Christ, our fellowship is real because the hostility is gone, and we're at peace with one another. You know how much you feel this love here in this place? It's because of the gospel. Otherwise, we would not spend our lives together. God is still doing that, still working this. One of the challenges to us is that it can be really easy to want to protect ourselves from any sort of harm. As disciples, at some level, we practice wisdom when it comes to that. But we will not reach people who do not love Jesus without at some level being vulnerable as his messengers. And finally, if you happen to be here this morning at First Baptist Church, and you know that you're not a Christian, I want you to know that I'm glad that you're here. Our church, we love you. We want to invite you to have forgiveness before God through Jesus who died for you. You can do that this morning. You can be reconciled to God and you can have a big family called the church that will love you, support you, and walk through life with you. Help you to reconcile with others that you perhaps have hurt. And know that if you do, um, we would be so excited at the work of Christ in your life. So if you would like to talk about the gospel with someone or even myself after the service, just know that I'm available. We would love to share the hope that we have in Christ with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the challenge from this text. We know that you are calling us to bring praise, glory, and honor to you in this calling that you lay upon us in love to those around us. Call us to love our brothers and sisters. You call us to love our neighbors. You even call us to love those who do not love us. We recognize that your calling for us is not optional. You command it. So we pray that you would help us to grow in this love. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.